We've been <clears throat> looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and then we're going to follow through into chapter 9 next week. Now, we've, made, we've had two messages now, basically about the spirit of giving in the New Testament. And the fact that so many have wrongly uh, taken giving as a legal, I use that term very specifically, legal commandment. In other words, there is a bar that's been set by God. 10% is generally the bar that people set in their minds. And they say that that is what people are required to give to be in good standing with God their Father. And I'm sure many of you sat through many messages geared towards that type of uh, exaction or requirement from you. And many threatenings have been ushered from uh, the leadership of different churches and um, you know, and, the, and others in the church, as your friends might have even threatened you, you know, as you uh, shared with them struggles in finances. The first question you might have received, and I've received it, I'm sure, uh, you have also, and that is what? Are you giving your 10%? You know, as if that's the magic number. You give 10% and you uh, are blessed beyond measure. You know, God's going to take care of everything. And, you know, without thinking... Doesn't that sound a lot like those we hear stand and say, sow the seed into my ministry of a hundred or of a thousand. See, they just don't use 10%. They just call it something else. Sow this much seed and God's going to give you tenfold. You see, the mentality really is not all that different. The mentality is about the same, and that is that there is a number. And when you reach that number, God's pleased to pour out on you abundance. Whatever that number is, fixed in your mind, in your family's mind, or by your church. And we've tried with diligence in the first two messages of this series on grace giving to show that God has no legal requirement for giving. The requirement is, a, or is shown to us as not a requirement, but an, an offshoot or an upshoot of grace. In other words, God's great grace in our lives equals great graciousness from His people. It's a simple equation in the New Testament. It's, it's as if, you know, you're hearing Jesus say to His disciples when you read Paul's words here, where He said, which will be happier, which will be more pleased with their forgiveness, the one who's forgiven little or the one who's forgiven much? And the answer logically is the one that's been forgiven much. And so... That's, that's kind of the concept he's showing to the Macedonians. They've been redeemed. Miraculously, they received the gospel. Even Paul was sent by a vision to them. You know, he was headed the opposite direction. And God turned him, sent him to Macedonia. They become Christians, and that great grace of God equals in their lives great graciousness. They start giving. They can't be contained. Their giving is beyond even Paul's expectation because why? Because they gave themselves, what? First to the Lord. We said, you can give away every nickel in your bank account to church or some ministry. If you continue to hold on to your life, it doesn't do you any good. It might increase the ministry's benefit. You know, they may benefit from your giving of your finances. But eternally, what God is calling on you to give is yourself. To Him completely. And when that happens, what is it? What, what did I say? I said, then when somebody says, you know, we need some money for this need in the church, you say, that's all you want? 
See, the opposite of the tither mentality or the legal requirement? Money's the least in the equation. Oh, you mean I'm going to give of my wallet? I've already given Him my heart. I've already given Him myself. I've already given my time. I've already given everything. My dreams, everything are laid at His feet. And that all He would ask in this situation is I open my wallet and give? Oh, that's no problem. How much, where do I sign up? Where do I line up to give to the needs of those who are in the church? And so we find the Macedonians in this state. Paul came to them and he, he's on a journey, not only spreading the gospel, but also because of the drought and the terrible conditions in the Middle East in, the, in this day, he's collecting from the many churches in Asia Minor and around the the uh, coast there, he's collecting an offering for Jerusalem. Now, we talked about the great poverty of the Macedonians. It doesn't say they were a little behind on their bills. It says they had nothing. They, they had almost nothing. It was grave poverty. And pa- so much so that Paul was moved to say, don't give any more. It's too much. I'm not asking you to give any more. Keep it. And they beg, they beg him, please let us participate in the relief of the saints. Please let us participate. All of the saints, all Christians suffer. That should be uh, expected. When God gives grace through His Son Jesus Christ into your life, you can expect suffering and trials and persecutions. Not the exception, but that is the rule. That's what we expect as Christians. Jesus said, if they persecuted the master of the house, what will they do to his servants? You know, we're not greater than Jesus. If Jesus had to suffer and did suffer at the hands of the world, how much more will we suffer is, is Paul's conclusion. And he says, I must enter the kingdom of God through many trials and sufferings. It's not an exception. Suffering is a part of grace. When grace is giving, suffering is turned up. Persecution is turned up. It begins in a sense, in one sense. And so their poverty was great. But it possibly the greatest area of persecution had, a, had occurred in Jerusalem. No church in the, in the early church faced the persecution the, the church at Jerusalem did. Now, it would be logical, right? <clears throat> if you want to kill a tree, where do you strike it? On its branch? What good does that do? Cut the branch off, there's still life-flowing sap coming from where? The root. Some of you have been gardening in these last weeks. A little. I have been. And if you've got weeds, you can cut the top of that weed off all day long. And what happens? It just sprouts right back up. So if you want to kill the weeds, you go to the root. And you dig it up. And it's gone. So when the Roman Empire and when the Jews turned up persecution on this little sect called the Way, first called Christians at Antioch, when it turned up the heat on those people, where did it go? Jerusalem. It went to Jerusalem because that's where the early church found its root. It found its beginning. The apostles were gathered there on Pentecost. And that's where the teaching went forth of the gospel. And thousands were saved and sent out to all of the regions of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, this sect began to just multiply. Great multiplication. If you read the book of Acts, it wasn't one person here or there. Thousands were being saved. 
And there was, there was a fear by the Romans and the Jews. The fear for the Jews was, if this sect continues, we'll be blamed for it. And the, and the Romans will come here and take our province from us. They will put us down. They will crush Herod, our king. They will crush the king that sits on the throne of Herod. And they will rule us with an iron fist. We've got to stop these Christians by all costs. We see that in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, the persecution from the Jewish section. And then also from the Romans. Why would the Romans be concerned? Well, Caesar was concerned because he was God, right? Everyone was to worship Caesar as their God. And what was the one thing Christians wouldn't do? They were good citizens. They were hard workers. They, they in many ways, were a benefit to society. There was one thing. They paid their taxes, like it or not, they, they paid their what, what was due to Caesar. But what would they not do? They would not worship His image. They would not bow down in their, in their secret rooms to His statue and give Him full allegiance and call Him the King of Kings. They reserved that title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even Rome and Caesar took notice of this sect. Of the, it, was, it was seen as a sect, an offshoot of the, the church of Jerusalem was seen as an offshoot of the Jewish religion at this point. Okay? It was, they didn't understand that it was a whole new, uh, it wasn't just an offshoot, it was an offshoot, but it wasn't just a temporary offshoot, a little schism. It was God saying, I've taken the wild olive branch and grafted it into Israel and now it is Israel too. It's also called Israel. And they're my people. And I'll gather them together. And I'll make one flock of two flocks. They were right. It's a, it's a, it's a sect in that, in that primitive sense that it's an offshoot. But it's not just a momentary detour. It's an eternal offshoot. It's going to continue to grow into the ages of the ages. And so this is the persecution that was being faced. And in the middle of that persecution, Paul is going about collecting an offering to care for the brothers and sisters that are still in Judea and Jerusalem. And Macedonia has been collected from, and now he's going to Achaia, to Corinth even, to collect. But the problem in Corinth, as we said last week, was this. Many false teachers had come from among them and began to teach that Paul was a false teacher. Oh, he told you he was going to come back. But he changed his mind. He lied to you. He didn't come back when he said he was going to. Now Paul takes full account for that. He said, I didn't come. It's early in 2 Corinthians. He said, I didn't come. But I didn't change the plans. The Lord changed the plans. But I'm coming. Don't worry. I'm going to get there. And remember, he sent a strong warning in, in chapter 10 and farther. He's going to send a very strong warning to those false prophets that were preaching against him. And were calling him a false teacher. I'm coming. And when I get there, you better hope you've repented. Because I will withstand you to your face. Even to your face I'll withstand you. So he wasn't afraid of these people. But he's trying to call on them to repent. Call on them to continue in the faith. Don't follow these false prophets. Some of these false teachers, we can assume, very safely assume, that they are Judaizers. They're trying to call this Christian sect back to legalism. You've you got to do what Moses said. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the law. You've got to keep the Sabbath on Saturday, not on Sunday. You've got to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. The seventh day uh, is holy. And all of the, the dietary laws and the, 
the, the laws of dress and custom were trying to be reinstituted by these false teachers. And so Paul is writing to them about this problem that he is going to come and solve. And one of the problems is I'm coming to collect an offering. And when I get there, I don't want it to look as if I've required it of you. Remember, you said a year ago you wanted to do this. I didn't require you. You desired it. Had great desire for it. Now finish. That's what we talked about last week. Desire is good, but finishing is better. You can say all day, I want to do this and I want to do that. And those intentions are great. God is glad you have good intentions. He wants you to follow through on those intentions, though. So Paul, last week, reminded them, as we saw. Now we come down to this 16 through 24, which we've already read, and I won't read again. But that's where we are. And you know, my temp, my, I was very tempted. Some of you may wish, at the end of this message, I wish he would have taken himself up on that temptation and skip this paragraph. Because I'll be upfront and honest. Some paragraphs are very exciting to preach in the Scripture. Some of them are not so exciting. Alright? And when I first looked at this paragraph, it wasn't all that exciting. I mean, it looks like Paul saying, I'm sending Titus to you and we'll send these other two brothers with him. They're good people. They're coming. They're going to collect this money. Everything's going to be good. You know, that's, that's the kind of the gist I got when I read through it. I, I told Aaron, I said, man... I just don't know what I'm going to do. I, I hate to skip it. This is why I hate to skip. Because by skipping it, I'm telling you it's not important. And that's not true. All of it is important. And there is a purpose for every word and every sentence. Some of them are clearer than others. And some of them are more applicable directly and immediately to our lives. But every word of the Scripture is is needed and necessary. The Holy Spirit wasn't just deciding He wanted to add a little to His volume here when He was talking to Paul, through Paul, and to Paul Himself, as Paul's writing this letter. So, there's a purpose behind it. And so, if I begin to skip over things because it's hard for me, then you'll do the same thing. When you're reading through the Bible, you'll say, oh, I don't need to study that. That's just a genealogy. or That's just a, that's just a, a historical fact. Who cares? Let's move on to the good stuff. And so I resisted the temptation, and I'm glad I did. Because the more you look at the paragraph, there's some deep truth here. There's some reality that we need to face, and it's very applicable to the church today. Scandals have been around the church from its inception, really. From its very beginning. People who would come in and teach wrong doctrine or take advantage of the dedication of a Christian. And that's no less today. All of us have been privy to watch a television program, sit in an audience, or listen to a radio broadcast where it's obvious the person teaching is taking advantage of the people there and their dedication. I, I, I could give n- no few uh, number of examples. When I was a child or a young man growing up in the 80s, you know, the famous example that uh, I was faced with was Jim Baker. You, you all remember Jim and Tammy Faye as they sat there on their uh, TV set and begged for money. More money, more money. Only to find out that they were embezzling funds, cheating the government, and had all kinds of racketeering charges ended up against them. And they end up, Jim Baker does, in prison for years. Uh, taken out of the ministry. Scandal. Scandal. 
Well, you know, you might say, why would you worry about people like that? <clears throat> well, I, I just did a quick search on the Internet through Google. Typed in church and scandal finances. And there were thousands of websites. I'm not exaggerating. Of lost people who would say, this God they're talking about cannot be true. Because if He's would, His servants wouldn't act this way. It's not a small matter that the leaders of the church are involved in scandal. Large or small, scandal brings a black eye to the church and to Jesus Christ Himself. Another example might be uh, here that we could use. And this, was, this was the largest number of sites I found. I, I, it may not be the largest number uh, but I didn't take the time to just go through thousands and thousands of websites. But there was one name associated with these today's scandals. Things happening right now, not history. And that name was Benny Hinn. And, you know, I, I, I was really taken back. I've never really watched him. I've kind of seen him from a distance and know what he's about a little bit. But this was a lost man that I got this information from. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but he is a, he's a, he's a reputable researcher. He has a doctorate's degree in religion. And at the end of his day, at the end of, his, of the day, in his concluding remarks, he says that the Christian faith is shaken to the very root of its existence by men like Benny Hinn. It proves that their faith is not real if their faith is not real, their God is not real. Therefore, we shouldn't believe in it. And it's easy to throw stones at Benny Hinn. And then I began to think about my life. Because, see, I'm not sticking my hand in the pot and pulling out a bonus on a regular basis. Or at all. <laughs> Only a few times. <laughs> And neither are the elders of this church. Neither are the deacons. Neither are church members. But our lives, whether it be with money or other matters, our lives are a picture of the truth of the gospel or they are blight and an accusation that can be used by the lost world to say their faith is false, their God is false. Why should I believe in that or trust that God? When we go about, no small number of pastors, by the way, asking for money as if that's the root of all God's work. <clears throat> it, and, and then take from that money and gain riches. Jets. I, 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 was, I was amazed at the number of pastors asking for jets. But we're not talking about they want an extra hamburger every month, okay? We're talking about Gulfstream jets. Millions of dollars for these things. And, 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 what, and on their own websites, they're bold enough to write, they call it Dove One. That's what Benny's named his jet, Dove One. And he says, this is amazing technology given to us by God for the ministry. Think of the tool this will be as I crisscross the world spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to His glory. Buy me a jet. That was the punchline. Buy me a jet so we can do this. 
And I thought, forget God's strategy, huh? Forget raising up disciples and planting churches in all those distant places. So you don't have to crisscross the globe anymore. And forget integrity. Who needs that? We'll comfort ourselves with the riches that the people will send in very willingly and very devotedly. Paul, in this paragraph, guards himself from being charged as a thief. If Paul had to guard himself from being charged with, by, by these people as a thief, as someone who would take a cut of the money, how much more do we have to guard ourselves as a church and as leaders of the church from this accusation? Trustworthy. Leaders who are trustworthy and above reproach. That's what this paragraph is really all about. We're going to see today that they don't, not only do they not want to be guilty of it, they want to give no occasion that someone might charge them of being guilty with any impropriety that would put a black eye on the ministry and ultimately on Jesus Christ. And here at Grace Fellowship, we've done, we've tried to do the same thing. The temptation is real. In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many have gone after that love of money, is his conclusion, and therefore have pierced themselves with many pains. It's not just that it's a temptation. It's a temptation that is dragging down the reputation of the church. Not just in our day, but in Paul's day. So if in Paul's day, when famine was, was vast across the globe, there weren't a lot of riches at everybody's disposal. There wasn't a lot of disposable income, as we call it. People are struggling to get by. If there's a temptation for pastors and leaders and people in that day to be involved in impropriety when it comes to money, how much more and how much greater is the temptation in the society where people have abundance, abundance of disposable income? It's not that we struggle to get by. We struggle to get the boat we want. The house we want to move into, the car we want to drive, the vacation we want to go on. That's what we're struggling over, many of us. It's not to get a piece of bread to eat and feed our kids. And so if it was a temptation in Paul's day, my point is how much greater is the temptation in our day and how much more do we have to guard ourselves knowing we're not the apostle? I mean, this is the super apostle, some have said. You had 12 apostles and he was... The apostle to the Gentiles. Set in some special category, almost, it would seem. And so, if he's tempted, how much more can we and are we tempted with these same things? Well, here at Grace Fellowship, we've recognized that temptation. Not because you have thieves for leaders, but because you have common men. That's what you have. You have men who are fallen and frail who do err and do make mistakes. And so there needs to be accountability. And we've tried to set that up. The leaders here, uh, the elders have decided and, and have made a policy in a sense that we don't sign checks. So if you need a bonus, you need some money from the dole, I can't give it to you. I have no ability to do that. I can't sign any checks. No authority over that. So I want to put your mind at ease over that That. I, the elders of this church don't collect the money that you give. We don't take it out of the box. Therefore, being able to shuffle around and get what we want or do any funny business with it. The deacons don't even collect it. 
Our financial secretary collects, makes deposit, and gives report of that. And so there's even accountability on her part. And so there's been a lot of processes put in place here to guard against impropriety. Are they perfect? Probably not. Probably not. No system is perfect. But there has been an attempt to safeguard the reputation, not of this church only. Are we concerned about this church and its reputation? We should be. It's a gospel church. But greater than that, we're concerned for the reputation of our Lord and our Savior. And that no one could write about us on the internet at some point in our history. Their faith is false. And their God, therefore, is false. Why should I believe? We don't want that. May that never be the case here. And so, I want you to look with me at this paragraph. That seems to be just kind of stuck in the middle of these great writings about giving. But it has a tremendous meaning. We're going to move rather quickly. There's three things I want to stress. It's very simple. Not very deep, very simple. The leaders of the church should be trustworthy and above any reproach. We get that from verses 16 through 19 and then verses 23 through 24. When Paul says he's sending Titus, who is zealous or who is earnest for you, you Corinthians, I'm sending him and I'm sending another brother who's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And then in verse 23 and 24, I'm not only sending these two men, but I'm sending another man who you all know, who is earnest in all things. And we've even seen he's earnest in this thing, in this collection for the Jews there at Jerusalem. And so they're above, they're trustworthy, they're above reproach. Paul sent Titus and two unnamed messengers of the church with a gift to Corinth. I, my, I couldn't resist my temptation to figure out who these two men are. I don't think it's really that necessary that we know who they are. If it were, Paul would have listed them. They obviously were so well known among the churches that they didn't need to be introduced. Just on sight, people would recognize who they were. But just for the sake of looking into the Scripture, I did study, did see opinions, and they're varied, but not very much. I believe that the three men that went that day from Paul, by the way, they're carrying 2 Corinthians in their hand. They delivered the letter to the Corinthians. And then they were going to receive from them the gift. So they're taking the correspondence of Paul to the church. And then they're going to take the gift back to Paul. And then Paul's going to come to them there at Corinth. The three trustworthy and men that are above reproach are Titus, I believe. I know that. And then I believe Barnabas and Luke. Why? Well, Barnabas, we know, was a great encourager. And he was even above Paul in notice in, in recognition early in Paul's ministry. They did ministry together, went on the first journey together, even ministered in Corinth. Both of them did. And so Barnabas, when he came from a distance, they would have said, oh, they, there's Titus, he's been at our church, and Barnabas. And we trust Barnabas. You know, Titus was a young man. And I don't know what it is about young people, but elders seem to be a little dis uncomfortable about young guys, you know? And I don't know why that. Does anybody know why that might be? Maybe because they, so many of us young guys don't know some practical wisdom that you have to gain through years. I accept that. I understand it. 
And then also maybe it is just uneasiness. Like, am I sure I want to give my kid's age person this kind of responsibility? So I think Paul wisely sent an older man with him. Somebody that they would look at as an equal and say, hey, there's Titus. You know, a little questionable about him. He's a little young, but there's Barnabas. He's our brother. He's our, he's our age. He, we know he preaches the gospel. We've heard him do it. He's a, he's a, he is famous among us. There's no question that this man's above reproach and not in it for his own selfish gains. Look at the wisdom of Paul. The wisdom to send these men ahead of himself. And then the third, I believe, there in 23 and 24 is Luke. I think that because we see there in verses 23 through 24, as for your benefit, uh, as, as for Titus, he is my partner. Excuse me, back up to verse uh, 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. And there was a, there was, there was a common companion of these men, all of these men, and that would have been Luke. He was a common companion to Paul, to Barnabas, and to Titus. And he would have been through a lot of tests by this time in his career uh, as the historian of the early church. And so that's just a, a conjecture based on research and some thought about what's said in the Scripture. But we know Titus is there. I believe Barnabas and Luke also accompanied him to not only deliver the message, but gain the offering, this great offering. These messengers were marked with earnestness. Not only did he send some, somebody to get the money, but he sent trusted men, earnest men. And the Greek there means zealous. They were zealous. You cannot be the minister, the pastor, the shepherd of a church and be disconnected from that church. You can't do it. It's impossible. Read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, the letters that he wrote to his, the churches he ministered in. They are soaked in love. All of them. Even when he's disciplined, even when he's hard on them, he's loving them. He's bringing them back because of love. And he's often calling them his children. And he's often saying he labors over them. And he's talking about how much he's, he's proud of them. They're his epistles, he says to the Corinthians, written on his heart. He loves them. He's affectionate to them. And in Ephesus, we know he was affectionate. There in Acts, and in, as he's getting ready to leave for the last time, he calls the elders of the church to himself. And with many tears and weeping, he warned them about those false prophets that would come as wolves in sheep clothing. And so he loved them. And yet in seminary often, and Bible college, pastors are taught to treat their congregation at a distance. Professionalism. I, had, I actually had a professor tell me that we could not use Jesus Christ as a model for ministry. And I said, why not? <laughs> you know, it just seems obvious to me that you would use Him. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, imitate me as I do what? Imitate Christ. There, there was an obvious imitation of the apostles of their Lord. Why not us to the Lord? He said, because we can't do ministry like Him. Duh. <laughs> no, no, no question I can't do everything He did the way He did it perfectly. No. But when it came down to it, what He was really concerned with was to keep a distance of professionalism to the ministry. A man of the cloth should not relate directly to his sheep. He shouldn't eat with them and stay in their house and 
go on vacation with them and be involved in discipleship. Why? Because they'll see his life. And if he's not perfect, then they won't want to follow him. There's something vastly wrong about that statement. And without talking about him, I know that that comes from a desire to walls oneself up in the ivory tower and to say, I'm better than you guys are. The reason I stand here and teach and you sit there is because I'm smarter. I know the Bible more. I'm more godly. All the implications are there. And if I keep a distance from you, you never see me fail. If you never see me fail, you go on in the illusion that I don't make mistakes. And I don't want that illusion. You know what? I'd rather follow the pattern laid for us in Scripture. I'd rather eat with you and live with you and study with you and fail with you so that you know that's a man. He's our brother in the Lord. Called of God, far from perfect, but desiring to be above reproach, and he's following Christ. How can I model discipleship? I, you know, how can I model the Christian life? How can you know that my family is in good order unless I open up and be an open book and transparent? And will there be things you find in me that you don't like? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you. Life's messy, and I've failed, and I'm going to fail again. But if I'm open and honest, a much greater thing happens, and that is this. You are encouraged to not place your trust in me, but to place your trust in Christ. And to say, our pastor is saved by grace through faith. In Christ. And he only knows it by scripture. For the glory of God. And I am saved by grace. Through faith. In Christ. By the scripture. For the glory of the Lord. We're brothers. Paul had every human reason to pull rank. And say I don't need these messengers. i tell you what I'm going to do for you Corinth. I'm going to show up. And I'm going to demand you give me the money you said you were going to give me. And I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. And he might have gained some respect as a hard-nosed leader from the world. He might have stomped on those false teachers' throats. But he would have lost the opportunity to be above reproach. A man of integrity. A man that's trustworthy. And so, he's gone to every effort. And, and why, would you, why would you think he did it in this area with finances? Name an area in the church more contentious than finances. Maybe music in our day. I don't know. More churches run into problems over finances and the expense of those finances than any other issue. You don't think Paul understood that? And so he lays the example for us. By sending Titus and two other unnamed, but yet I believe Barnabas and Luke were those men, to Corinth. And then those messengers were marked with a zeal, a relationship, a tremendous love for Corinth. They would have known Titus and they would have known Barnabas and they would have known Luke and they would have known Paul. It wasn't a professional job that Paul was doing. He was doing dirty, hands-on ministry. He was living his life, reproducing himself into the flock. It can't be done at a disconnected distance. 
And the leadership is above reproach in dealing with the offering given by Corinth. We see that. They're above reproach. And that's what they're seeking to be is above reproach. Because he says, this is why we're sending them to you. We take this course in verse 20, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, Paul writes to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and tells him, watch out, there's much godly gain to living a life of contentment. But there is a pursuit of riches that creeps into the heart. And when a man begins to pursue and love riches more than God, Timothy, he will be pierced through with many pains. It's already happening around you. Don't be one of those, son. Don't do it. Don't go after dirty game, is what Paul calls it. Filthy lucre. Don't go after money, son. Stay committed to the gospel. And that's what he's showing as an example. He didn't just preach the message he lived and walked the walk. He didn't just tell Timothy not to do things. He then exemplified to Timothy the fact that you don't give the, the uh, occasion for reproach. The leadership of the church should be trustworthy and above reproach. The leaders of the church should be concerned not only with the approval of the Lord, but also with their testimony among men. That's the second thing we see here. Paul understood that there is a potential for accusation in verse 20. What could the accusation be? Well, it could be that they thought he would steal it, misuse it, possibly. Not use it for what they had given it for. Maybe be careless. Maybe Paul would be careless. Or, I think the main reason, he simply understood they were opposed to him, so instead of pressing the area, instead of pressing the fight, and saying, they don't trust me, these false teachers. Instead of showing up and pressing them, he stayed at a distance and sent others. This is a love for the false teacher here. And he sends, it's interesting to me, a Gentile. Titus is a Gentile. He accompanied Paul. We know from Galatians that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas when they went before the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Paul tells us he was there. He was the example of the Gentile faith. You want to know a little something about Titus? Titus was an example that the Holy Spirit had gone not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And so he sends this Gentile, this well-known Gentile servant with, of the Lord with Paul to collect the money. And he wasn't foolish. He didn't just send a Gentile. He sent a couple of Jewish men with him. He sent men... Of, of the brethren. Men who would then go with Titus and help show that this is a unified effort. The Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians joining hands to reach out to the saints. It's not just one sect or another. It's all of us. He's, uh, when he talks about no one can blame us in verse 20, he seems to be talking about these false teachers. Paul and the other leaders were seeking to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And in that supposed to be the call of a pastor to please the Lord. He says in Galatians, if I serve men, then I do not serve Christ. So his first objective, make no mistake about it, is to preach the gospel and serve Jesus Christ. But so many in our day seem to elevate that as if it is opposed to staying out of the reproachful eye of the world. 
and staying in good testimony with their fellow man. They say, well, I'm serving the Lord. My conscience is clear, so I'll do what I want to do. And if people don't like it, they can get over it. That's not the spirit of the apostle. Neither should it be our spirit. He had every right to take exception. He had done nothing wrong to deserve this false accusation and all this attack against him. But yet he went to great lengths to make sure there was no way they could charge him with anything. No way they could say, lay blame at his feet. He was worried a little also in verse 21b, in the second part of verse 21, we see he was concerned for the way those would, in the community would see him, the way they would see the ministry. He was looking at the way, I would not only want to be right in the Lord's eyes, I want to be right in my fellow man's eyes. He in this way is exemplifying for us 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, when it says an overseer should be above reproach. Above reproach. Now, what does that word reproach mean? We don't use that every day, do we? That's not common vernacular for us. What is above reproach? It means that there's no handle on you where somebody could hold you, grip you, make a charge, or like Teflon, it doesn't stick. Nothing sticks. Will they attack you? Will they throw things at you? Hurl accusations, accuse you as a believer and say, you did this or your motive was wrong here. Or, they did it to Paul. They did it to Christ. They'll do it to us. The difference is a man above reproach, those things hit him and bounce off. As soon as they're hurled, he doesn't have to defend himself. People rise up and say, no, you can't talk about him that way. We know that's not true because we watched his life and we see his character and we know, though he's not perfect, his intention was not to defraud you or to take advantage of you in any way. Yet another strike against professionalism and distance. How will you know that about your pastor unless you relate with him daily and weekly and monthly and regularly and you see his life? An open book is dangerous, but necessary. There's no question it's dangerous. I'm not above failure, and I may fail. I pray that I do not, and I hope you pray that I do not. But if I fail, it's better that that's known and disciplined and remedied, even if that means I'm out of the ministry. Because in doing that, we will again show that we do serve a true God who's bigger than one man and whose gospel will go to the ends of the earth, whether Carlton Weathers lasts or doesn't. See, this is a great testimony to us. Paul is exemplifying what it means to stand above reproach, to not have handles so that they could grab you in a charge, snare you, grab you. That's the picture there. To snare a man. He's above a snare. Oh, there'll be snares laid out for him, but he navigates the minefield without blowing himself or the church up in that minefield. He's above reproach. Paul understands that pastors are the target of Satan. Their fall will harm many And their sin is more hypocritical. And if you're not comfortable with that, I advise you as James, the brother of our Lord, did, do not go into teaching the Word of God. Because we do face a stricter judgment. You say, that's not fair. You just said, I'm just a human. Yeah, you're human. But you've been brought into an office that calls on you to be the shepherd, the example, the picture of the gospel to those around you. 
there's much more responsibility. And therefore, if there's more responsibility, there's more opportunity for a great fall, not just a little fall. And we are the exact picture of a target. We have a target on our back. We have a mark as pastors, as elders. And that's why I beg with you, plead with you, pray for your leaders. Pray for us. We're not iron men running a race without you. If we fail, let it be because of our own failures. Don't let it be because you failed to pray. Pray for us. I can't ask you any more sincere than I am. Pray for us daily because we are the target of attack. And not only that, but we are fallen humans who are prone to give way and to lose ground. So pray for us. Hold us up before the Lord. It's not that they're serving men. Don't get that wrong. He's not saying I'm serving men. He's saying I'm serving Christ. And by serving Him, I'm serving men. And it does matter what they think of me. It does matter. Finally, this passage would say to us, the leaders of the church were men of great character and integrity. Paul's display of godly affection towards Titus bubbles over in verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. In Titus, the letter he wrote to this young man in the ministry at Crete, he said that he was his son. He's his son. He's his fellow worker. He's his laborer. This great, deep affection. Paul probably led Titus to Christ and then discipled him. Raised him and Timothy up. And now they are examples to all men of the grace of God and the ability of God to save. Paul says that other messengers, that the messengers and the church are the glory of Christ. And he encourages the Corinthians to prove themselves before men. Not only am I seeking to be seen right in the eyes of men, I'm calling on you to be seen rightly in the eyes of men. You've said you would give. I'm sending those to collect the gift you promised. Now don't let us all down. Don't let us all down. Do what you said you would do. And that's a picture of the glory of Christ, he says. The church, I don't know, in our day, is kind of relegated to this necessary evil almost by many. Many would say, well, who needs the church? I'm a believer. I have Christ. Why be in the church at all? Paul says the church is the glory of Christ. Not that it's a necessary evil. It's the very glory of Christ. It's the crown of Christ. Listen to these words that found in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And I read that for this reason. This church is a part of the great church of God. All of us are part of that foundation, that pillar, which holds up the very gospel. And I've shown you some examples. I've read you some examples. And I'd say, go look. They're there for you to view. 
when the church behaves wrongly in the area of finances, when a leader falls in the area of money, it shakes that foundation. Whether we like to admit that or not, it shakes that foundation to those in the outside world so that they say, you're not the pillar and buttress of the truth. You're a thief. You're a philanderer. You're a beggar. You're taking advantage of the poor for your own filthy gain. If you would do that, then your faith is not real. And if your faith is not real, your God is not real. And if your God is not real, why should I ever believe you? I'll go my way. I'll live my own life. See, you say, why preach on money? It's a touchy subject. People might get upset because it's important. Our testimony is at stake. And what I'm asking you to do is give to the Lord. And I'm saying... Are we, you, the question you need to answer is, are your leaders trustworthy? And if they are, entrust their, the money to the leadership of this church and other organizations that are doing the gospel work of Jesus Christ. Trust them with it. Trust that God's doing His work through them. And pray that they stand in the day of temptation. Pray for them that they don't fall. Let's pray together. Father, we look at this paragraph, we see the transparency of somebody as esteemed as Paul. We know he's not greater than us in his manhood, but at the same time, he's called to a much greater office than any of us will ever hold. And that is that he is the, one of the founding apostles of the church. He is your man, the messenger to the Gentiles. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to emulate him and emulate you through him. Lord, help us to be above reproach. I pray that as everyone here is gathered, that they've taken assessment of their own situation, their own lives. Are they trustworthy? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe they themselves are not trustworthy, not above reproach. And so, Lord, I pray you would help them in those areas. And then also, God, that you would be with the leadership of this church and build that camaraderie and that trust between the leadership and the the faithful members of this church and the community outside this church, that we would be a glory to you and not a black eye on the gospel. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you for all of your great gifts to the church through your own death, suffering.